Welcome to episode 10 of the Transit Matters podcast. We are the show that brings you news and analysis of transportation in greater Boston with uh, tons of uh, entertaining commentary as well. Yes. <laughs> uh, we have our regular panel here today. I am Jeremy Mendelson. I'm an urban geographer and a transit planner with experience designing bus and rail services for transit agencies. I'm Mark Ibunya, and I'm the curator of our blog and social media feeds. Uh, by day, I'm an IT sysadmin, and by night, I'm the Leslie Nope of Transit, geeking out over uh, meeting celebrities in transport and getting knee-deep in advocacy. And I'm Josh Fairchild. I'm a lawyer who works in commercial real estate, and I'm a transit enthusiast at all other times. And uh, mostly, I just uh, come at this from a political and policy perspective and like to think about... Um, how our political decisions and, and policy informs how our transit happens or doesn't happen. Cool. Great. Um, and so we're, you know, we got some, uh, some, some big news, constant news going on here. Um, there is, there are a number of uh, pieces in the media and in uh, popular discourse. I'm sure uh, if you're not living under a rock or uh, outside the city of, in the region of Boston, you probably know that the MBTA, our transit system, has pretty much collapsed. Even if you're not living in Boston, it seems like HuffPost has even picked it up now. And they're trying to explain to the rest of America what's going on in Boston. Right. So They're trying to explain, like, you know, the importance of a switch heater to you know, <laughs> get some guy in Nebraska. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm, sure ne- I'm sure some guy in Nebraska doesn't need to have that explained to him. <laughs> uh, I think Omaha is a nice place. It, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so we so we got a number of things going on. Uh, yep. Mark, you had a great piece in a couple of days ago about uh, the pen- uh, impending resignation of Beverly Scott, the general manager. Uh, it sounds like basically there was a lot of there's been a lot of uh, hardship. It's been very frustrating for everybody involved. And the T, as General Manager Beverly Scott has has said many times, um, and uh, you know, I'm really happy that she's made such a, a passionate defense of the agency and uh, the people that are working hard uh, in this process. Um, but you know, as she said, you know, we're working with really old equipment, with uh, stuff that doesn't work. We haven't. We have a very uh, underinvested system, and so you know, we you know, the basics. You know, we don't have. We have frozen switches. We got. You know, cars that are just get a little snow in them yeah. and they stall and all these basics. And, um, you know, Governor Charlie Baker came out, you know, and he was asked about the T and he said, you know, it's, it's unacceptable that T's been shutting down, having these delays, you know, like essentially like kind of blaming them. And uh, the general manager said, well, look, you know, this is what we got. And they had a little bit of a spat and then she said she's going to resign. I, I think the biggest the biggest thing that drove her to to do what she did at that press conference was the questions that the press were asking. While they they seemed like they were hard-hitting, and I'm pretty sure that they were trying to get a rise out of her, they were also the legitimately the, the questions that a lot of people have been asking. What about refunds? Have you considered resigning? All of these things, all of these questions that if you watch the entire 30-minute press conference, it just kind of devolves over time and and it seemed like a lot of people also weren't used to her talking style and the comments of where where she was where this video was posted so um it seemed like it's for a lot of people it seemed like she was rambling on in this kind of southern drawl type way but if you if you know how to listen to people um she she basically was saying look i'm unimportant in this these problems have been your problems, Boston, and you've been having to deal with them. No one has been listening. We've all been saying this for years. We've been saying this for the better part of a decade now. Um, you are you are uh, a fool for not for for thinking that you can get away with being able to say that the transit system would have been able to 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 pass muster in weather like this, and then also not 
being able to say, okay, well, this, these, there is an unlimited, not unlimited, but there's a significant number number of resources out there, reports, uh, reviews, Boston Globe articles, heck, even even uh, Herald articles that have been put out analyzing this problem from every which angle, and for you to keep for people to keep saying that, oh yes, the T could have performed better in this situation, um, or at least could have continued operating um, by by some me- measure of means, then you know you're 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 just a fool. You're you're foolish. Yeah. She said. That's what she said. Right. No, yeah. I'm not going to. She said. She said. I'm not going to say it. But foolish. Right. So, uh, but yeah, that's uh, that's that's where we are. I mean, Beverly Scott. That is that is the first time I have ever seen a a politician. No, sorry, I'm not going to say politician. She's not a politician. Mm-hmm. She is a she is a uh, first and foremost a transit uh, transit management expert, uh, and she is experienced. She's not just some like figurehead of like, oh yeah, I know how to I'm management. Blah 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 blah. She she knows the issues uh, from a from a very low level. Um, so. And that's what makes me really depressed about this whole thing. It's like we yeah. finally got somebody after all these years and all these, you know, political pointy yeah. after political pointy, uh, you know, some better than others. Yeah. You know, we finally get this point where like we have somebody who was experienced running transit agencies and yeah. he's doing a really good job and apparently he was really well liked by yeah. um people who know transit, by people in the agency and it feels like she gets the employees and treats them well and all this. And then you know, to to that and like now, oh yeah, who are we gonna find to do this job now? I wonder, I mean, considering her age, I wonder if it is because of that, of whatever, but at the same time, I'm wondering if it is because of her age that she's saying, I'm getting too old for this shit, to deal with, <laughs> yeah. to deal with politician, to, to deal with a, um, a legislator, a legislature and a uh, gu- gubernatorial administration who may not have my back for the next year, as much as the writers ache and complain about this, I, I just don't have the, she, she might just not have the wherewithal to be able to say, I can I can last after April. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget who said this in the Boston Globe. Somebody, uh, one of the columnists, said, uh, you know, like you can bet every state employee, you know, every every manager is now, you know, down there looking behind their, their head, you know, like trying to see, like, oh, am I next? You know, right. am I gonna? Right. You know, well, so like, you're you're referring to her being thrown under the bus by by Charlie Baker, right? Like by, by Governor your, Baker. Yeah, you need to support your employees, and if you don't right. stand up for your employees, and at the very least, he's like, he's like, oh, I haven't talked to her because you know I'm not. Her. Right. Yeah, you're the governor. You can give her a call. Right. So you know her phone number. I mean, and this is so. <laughs> so to bridge it back to the post that I wrote, um, our closest example was from 2011 when when highly qualified, you know, like um, died in the wool transit. Manager grew up in Queens like I did. had had been running, had been working um, at the MTA since he was a kid. Like this, this being CEO of the MTA was his dream job. Um, managing the system that he worked in, and then he he cut and he cut and he cut and he was he was not ruthless, but he was just very very decisive and uh, about reforming the M- MTA in New York City. And um, and he was very well liked by a lot of people, and uh, you know, just like Dr. Scott, um, maybe a little less um, uh, less kind of uh, roundabout with his words than Dr. Scott, but uh, but well liked to say the least. And so um, he left because uh, Governor Cuomo just didn't have his back. And as I mentioned, um, uh, there was a piece in the New York Times if you uh, if you go to the article uh, that basically kind of cites. The last encounter that he had with Governor Cuomo, Governor he he had traveled the two and a half hours, right. not the not the eight not the eight hundred fifty meters across the common to go to the state house, but two two and a half 
hours by train to go visit him in the capital district in Albany, uh, in what some might consider upstate New York, technically, it's not upstate New York, but, <laughs> um, far enough, like, if it would have been as if, as if, uh, Dr. Scott had traveled to, to Springfield to see the governor, and then the, uh, she, she was greeted by the governor, and then the governor turned and then walked out of the room to talk to somebody else. Um, so that's, uh, that is, that is, that we're, that's what we're looking at. So, um, uh, Dr. Scott, we, uh, if you happen to be listening or if any of your staff happens to be listening, we wish we were the ones who, who sent the flowers to you, um, earlier, uh, earlier last week, but, um. I would give you a job, but I don't have any money. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, Dr. Scott, if you'd, if you'd love to, uh, to join us, uh, in your, in the afterglow after all of this blows over, we'd love, we'd love to have you on, but, uh, but in any case, um, thank you very much for your service, and uh, we wish that we wish that the the rest of the T writers had been at your back before you had to resign. So, well, I'm I'm trying to come at this from sort of this political angle of, you know, why why wouldn't Governor Baker have met with her before this point? And I'm thinking, you know, he doesn't have direct control over the MBTA. There's the the board that mm-hmm. is between him and there, and and uh, the MassDOT Secretary Stephanie, or the Secretary of Transportation Stephanie Pollock, she's yep. the governmental, she's the governor's appointee that's actually on the board. Right. Um, so I'm thinking more the situation is we have a new governor who unfortunately comes into office in January. Yeah, absolutely. And he's probably trying to maintain a little bit of distance as he decides what exactly should his tack be with this agency yeah. that he doesn't have direct control over. Um, I think personally I would have made made the phone call you know much in advance, but you know he's probably thinking here's somebody that I'm not sh- it's not my appointee I'm not sure you know this is this is who Governor Patrick pushed for mm-hmm. and he's probably thinking I'm not sure if this is who I want to be in the agency so maybe I should keep my distance for a little bit. Has he not been paying attention to what's been going on with her? <laughs> well, and I, and I think yeah. you know when when he when he made the comment about you know what was happening with the T being shut down being unacceptable, I think that was the kind of comment that. And I don't think that it was a personal comment. Those no. comments that were made, were, I don't think it was personally about uh, anybody at the T. I think that was kind of what a politician has to say is, look, this, as governor, I don't think it's acceptable yes. that this is where our transit system has come to. Yes. It yes. doesn't mean that I think that, you know, uh, Beverly Scott is not doing a good job or not trying her, her hardest. So that's kind of where I take that. Yeah. And and then when I think about how she reacted, I, I think it's hard for you to imagine, you know, she's as you, as you point out, she's not a politician. She's... Um, she's a, a transit manager, so I'm thinking. Well, so she, she probably didn't maybe come into this expecting to resign, but I think everything she's done has really, I probably been for the best of the legacy of do we deal with this issue and how do we deal with it? Mm-hmm. Because I, I think her giving that press conference, her you know standing up and bluntly telling the truth or colorfully telling the truth, and then later resigning, I think that that really plays up the issue to an extent that maybe wouldn't have happened so far. And if you're thinking from her standpoint, okay, so her her contract expires next December, uh, or December 2015, this coming December, on the cusp of the next winter, if somebody knew's coming in, because it was pretty widely known that she wasn't planning to renew the contract. No, she, yeah. She had family issues. um, She's at the retirement age. This was going to be the peak of her career. She came in saying that. So if she knew she wasn't going to stay on, if somebody else was going to come in, and they're going to have to get ready for the next winter, she's probably better off giving them as much lead time as, as she can for them to prepare for the next winter because you wouldn't want to be somebody coming into this, like, in December, you know, like right. when it's about to start snowing. So I, 
I'm thinking about all those things and right. you know how those things play together. Uh, no, that's a that's a good point. Um, I, I've I've personally been very careful about saying that um, th- that uh, Governor Baker has directly pushed Dr. Scott. Uh, and again, a lot of that ha- there is a lot in play in the politics. Um, though, admittedly, Doctor uh, no, Doctor Baker, <laughs> Doctor <laughs> Scott said she, she's she's worthy of the title. Uh, Governor Baker um, does have uh, at least a lot of re- some somewhat direct control with the T, um, or at least more direct control with the T than say. I'm trying to think. Of course he yeah. does. I mean, he's, he's just like playing around with weasel words here. He's going, yeah. "Oh, I don't." Have, you know, you're the governor. You can, you know, you can. It's just like it's just like when you know when Obama comes out and says, "Oh, well, I can't do it." It's just, you know, it's like it's like, well, you 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 know, you you can give speeches, you can talk to different people, you he can get can, a, sit them in a room, he can and do say, executive you know, orders do? about yeah, whatever he wants. I know. And so so this is like, I mean, this is the, the frustration. I I just don't think that we're going to really see, you know, we're, we're not seeing. Maybe we'll see it in the coming days, right. and I'm just not I'm just not expecting it. But well, it doesn't seem like we're going to see like a real initi- a real effort by Charlie Baker to like do something bold to kind of step in. Right. So moving moving a little forward to uh, more leadership. So Stephanie Pollock, for example, um, I kind of touching on what other advocates have said is that our concern is that he has he, on the on the campaign trail he didn't really talk about transportation a lot. So um, Stephanie Pollock might just be he might be. He might not directly be trying to interfere with the MBTA because he feels that that she is the policy person and that she would be the more appropriate one. And and in a way, you know, Charlie Baker may actually just be delegating. Um, so, but uh, um, you know, we'll we'll see. Let's let's. I guess we'll. This will be one of those things that we'll have to wait out on, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but uh, the best that we can do is give um, give uh, Governor Baker our support at least in hoping that he'll. He'll in turn uh, return the favor with with his um, support of, uh, of Stephanie Pollock. So, yeah. so one of the things that I mean, one of the things that I want to talk about, you know, since we're talking about, uh, you know, what uh, what Governor Baker and Stephanie Pollock can do, um, I wanted to plug something that I had posted on the site uh, just well, maybe this is yesterday or a couple of days ago, depending on when I can get this podcast up. Um, the the idea of the fact that right now, I mean, with the city, with the transit agency having having fallen apart, um, the the system is a mess. There is like complete gridlock traffic all over the city. Um, people, it's taking two and three hours to get to work, and um, you know, it's it's just so you know we have we have a, a crisis in Boston right now, mm-hmm. and so you know my my post I was saying that you know we we need uh, Governor Baker and Mayor Walsh and other leaders. Who, you know, come together and reach out to other agencies who have dealt with, you know, natural disasters and other things before and and can help us set up a, an emergency bus network to, because yes, we all want these rail lines to come back. Right. But, you know, we had the news that it's going to take 30 days to get to get the, our, our system back to the normal, the usual, right. you know, the disabled trains and switch problems and everything else that we're used to. Right. So, you know, we need, like, tomorrow... Uh, a bus network that can get people around. Uh, we need to have you know, dedicated lanes in for you know we need to have a police out there directing traffic. Um, you know these be free buses to keep, keep them moving. Right. You know we need to charter like you know a thousand buses from like all over the Northeast, and we need to like you know just serious like all out like you can't drive your car into the city unless you got three people in it, 
and and you know real real serious stuff like that 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 we've seen in places like right. New York and San Francisco when they dealt with these crises. Because because people complain of oh I can't get to work because the tea's not working. But then what about it also hurts the regional econ- economy for those people like for example uh, material materials and cement uh, and cement uh, trucks who you know you can't carpool with other people on that. I mean I'd like to see you try carpool you know ten people into a cement truck, but um, like. Construction that's ongoing, that's continuing, uh, that is ongoing downtown Boston, like Millennium Tower, um, or all of the hun- the several other dozen- dozens of projects that are ongoing in downtown Boston, who's um, who are they? They must use the roads, and and these are essential. These are essential to our economy, where you know you again, like you can't you can't carpool like. UPS trucks or something like that. These, these, you're right. You, these people. We need to put a uh, a barrier around a bubble around Boston that basically says if you can't come into this bubble unless you've got more than three people um, in the car. Um, well, I, I think I think that's going on a little bit. I think it's that's a little extreme. I think that that's a good idea, mm-hmm. and that's, that's actually probably the best way that things would happen. But people aren't going to change their commuting habits over. Well, they can change their commuting <laughs> habits overnight, but I don't think we the best way to do this is to force that to happen. I think that you should say, look, if you've got more occupants in your vehicle, then you can get in the faster lane. We have the HOV lane. Oh, yeah. We need to have better HOV lanes, yeah. a, a better network of HOV lanes. Um, so I think the decision people needs to be, okay, the calculation. Uh, should I go into the city and have it take me twice as long, or should I, you know, by myself, or... Can I find someone else to ride with me right. so that I can get there quicker? I well, think that is a better decision other than just like saying you can't enter the city. Or maybe it's you pay extra. Maybe if you have other occupants in the vehicle, you don't pay the right. toll, and that's how we introduce uh, congestion pricing. Well, but what? Why can't we make it as as simple as an edict, like what Paris had to do with their with their emissions issues? Of the emissions are are becoming toxic. We need only we we are only going to allow people with. You know, licenses ending in odd numbers or something like that to to come into the city limits. Um, it, I mean, I, I mean, keep in mind, yeah. like this, this wasn't. I mean, just the. I'm not suggesting by any stretch of right. imagination that you know the usual the usual situation of you know two months ago um, was right. was wonderful because yeah. it was not. It certainly these probably you know these are there there are ways of of, of sort of addressing right. that, but. Um, you know what I'm talking for. What I'm talking about right now is that we have an absolute emergency right now, yeah. where you know you can't move around the city. You know, the delivery the service vehicles can't move around. Uh, you yeah. can't get around. The economy is, is falling apart. Yeah. And I mean, that's why we need to say like, right. just you know, just straight up, you know, HOV requirements and and uh, you know, make make like close off, you know, make yeah. bike streets so people can can bike and walk to work and like serious like. All out. I, I think this needs to be part of a disaster. So, so kind of trying to bridge it back to the MBTA contingency planning, mm-hmm. I think this needs to be a regional contingency plan because there needs to be something between full service, no, no contingency plan, or no contingency in place, to, you know, full-on travel ban. We, there's nothing in between. We don't... Uh, I mean, Mayor Walsh has been great this week with his announcement of one direction, uh, unidirectional travel on some, uh, some streets in Southie, um, which was, uh, to say the least, a surprise. Um, and I want to say that this is, this is the... Um, <laughs> Mayor Walsh, or if anybody from your administration is listening to this podcast... This is the type of this is the type of quote unquote innovative um, 
uh, traffic management that we need to be doing in the 24th century. 24th century. I'm in Star Trek. I'm in Star Trek land. 24th century. Sorry, 21st century. I might as well be the 24th century. It feels like this is these these are things that should not be groundbreaking for us in America, but they are. Um, uh, in terms of political, in terms of being able to say political, you know, being able to say to people. Okay, we're going to limit your travel in this direction because this is this is what's good for the Commonwealth. This is what's good for um, for traffic flow, and you know, kind of turning it on its head of where people are constantly like. I feel like we're in this age now where where people are constantly forced to ask the or they're they're in this mode where they want to uh, where even people who are well qualified to say, look, this is I am an expert in subject X, like immunizations or whatever to question that and say listen as a person as a as a human being i know uh, i have a right to question this to the point where you need to explain or we can't do this until i'm fully convinced that this will do anything to improve my life well i think i think one of the issues that we have that's probably different from paris is that we have different levels of government yes. and and any semi private operations that are at play here so Mm -hmm. you know for example like okay so yeah mayor walsh can do all kinds of traffic management in south boston but it's really more difficult for him to make any type of edict about who's coming in on the mass pike or 93 or something like that and exiting you know onto atlantic or wherever wherever they're getting off because that's you know that's mass dot that's those are state-owned roads um the mbta is uh its own entity that operates on a regional level, but doesn't have direct accountability to any of the mayors, mm-hmm. or even as Governor Baker tells us, to the governor. Um, you know, so and then we've got 101 cities and towns in the regional area. You know, they, is it in the catchment area of the MBTA? 101 yeah. cities and towns in yeah. Greater Boston, and yeah. so it's really difficult. It's easy to say that we should do these things, right? But of is, course, is Mayor Walt? Can he act in a vacuum to implement these kind of ideas? No, of course, it's very difficult. I think that's the biggest problem. Is and that... what can the T you know implement some of these things? No, the T right. doesn't have power over yeah. these lanes. You know, well, they I mean, may operate the buses, but they don't have power to say what happens with these lanes. I, I think mean, that's your, your point is well taken. I think right. this is this is exactly why you yeah. know, like Mark just said a minute ago, contingency planning. Yeah. That you know, we we should have. We should have done been doing this, and we should have been. You know, I, I've often said that the T seems to have no idea what to do if, you know, if the Longfellow Bridge goes out for a month. You know, as an example of something that could go wrong. That you're like, oh, all Which, of a sudden they know how to bust it on the weekend, but all of a sudden, you know, long term, like, and it's the kind of stuff that that this stuff hasn't been planned planned for. Right. For everything from you know one one station is down to yeah. you know complete system emergency crisis like this, and. So we could we could dwell on that, but we could also look at like okay, like we need we need like big bold action now. We need to like get right. you know get all these leaders in the room and like not you're not leaving until there's yeah. a plan in place. I think a lot of I think that's that's that might be part of the 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 politics of New England that I'm perhaps not used to is how people kind of still tiptoe around each other. Um, while uh, Curtitone, I want to I want to I want to call Jeffrey out Mayor Curtitone from. From Massachusetts, uh, from Somerville, Somerville. He, mayor of Somerville. He is he is the mayor of Somerville, and he's been great about uh, forwarding even his own constituents over Twitter to to sign the the T four MA petition and uh, and and really say you know he he's been a staunch advocate of of, of the T and and uh, was one of the people who was present at the uh, Mayor Menino's um, I believe it was 
back in 2013, in the summer of 2013, uh, his mayor's summit that he held um, at South Station. So, uh, you know, props to him, but I, I'm curious, like, uh, I, I would love to say Mayor, Mini, uh, May, not, sorry, Mayor Curtitoni um, volunteer uh, for, you know, Somerville, the works to, uh, sorry, no, that's Cambridge, isn't it? Um, their DPW, their DPW to, to say, okay, we're going to put traffic cones down, you know, X street, or there's no going to be no parking on this street, only buses, whatever, bus lanes, this, that, and the other thing. Um, and you said, like, even if these, even if these mayors, these mayors can't necessarily operate in the vacuum, but it, it, it only takes one, one mayor to, to say, okay, we're going to do X, um, within my limits, within within my city limits, to say, okay, Blue Hill Ave, you we you don't have your twenty eight X yet, but we're gonna we're gonna make a dedicated bus lane for the for the twenty eight bus and all of the buses that run up and down Blue Hill Ave, uh, and it's gonna happen tomorrow. Uh, it's gonna be policed. Uh, it's gonna be enforced by police. You're you're in that zone and uh, and you get ticketed. You know that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good. I think that's a good example. Um, one of the things that we also have to remember is just an illustration of this point in a different setting is when we had the marathon bombing and we had um, the issue in Watertown yes. with the manhunt. Yes. There were there were issues where police departments have trouble communicating. You know, they had a whole bunch of police departments responding technologically and, across different right, their yeah. radio frequencies and their technologies and the dispatch and things like that. And you would think, okay, these are people who drill on interagency, we've been told, they, inter, they drew on interagency cooperation in emergency is that, situations. Is that and, not led by MEMA, right? Yes, I yeah. believe so. But they were having these issues. So you think, okay, so now we've got an emergency situation with transportation. It doesn't really surprise me right. You know that this is another agency in a different sphere that's having trouble with cooperating. Um, but I, I think we need to, this is an emergency, and this is something, I mean, it should, if we were to back up, this is something where the T should outline what the best practice would right. be. Yes. And they should be able to get in the room with the mayors and the governor at the same time to say, hey, we need to solve the problem. And maybe maybe this should happen in the next 30 days. Yes. So kind of um, moving forward with some of the bullet points that we have here, that emergency transportation plan, uh, calling out um, uh, Mayor Walsh's um South Boston one-way streets, uh, props to that. And then also tapping NEMA, um, the Massachusetts Emergency Management Agency, or is it Emergency yes. Management Agency, for building more, for tapping them, for the for building those organizational resources to ensure that this doesn't happen again. For example, building up a plan that um, one of those hundred or so towns and the MBTA and the state of Massachusetts can follow and saying, okay, this is level one emergency, this is level two emergency, and so on and so forth. And then also the MBTA being able to take that piecemeal and say, okay, yeah, uh, like what you've said, Jeremy, the uh, the Longfellow is out, or you know, the Mass Ave Bridge is out. Um, how are we going to how are we going to divert traffic for not only cars but for pedestrians? For cyclists and especially for transit vehicles that need to that that need to keep that capacity in place so that we don't have a uh, you know hashtag stuck in traffic you know traffic apocalypse type thing. So, um, but then the other thing is about um, Homeland Security DHS and how it can help the MBTA with this because um, the not. or or not <laughs> uh, ironically because I mean the thing is it, it DHS. Um, they kind of skirt that edge of like making sure that we're safe at home, but also kind of 
can can give that little bit of funding where we're trying to figure out, hey, where can this money come from? Uh, they, the DHS has funded MBTA projects like the security cameras and also the emergency training facility. So in this case... Um, uh, as, but I, I wrote that. Yeah, in this case, emergency <laughs> equals service disruption. So right. I was trying to get the point across that you know, emergency is not necessarily just is not you know necessarily a terrorist attack yep. or a police you know a police manhunt or you know a uh, you know fire department activity. You know, emergency is when the service doesn't work, and that's, yes. you know we didn't every day. That's what you talk about when you talk about an emergency. You talk about you know when one of your lines isn't working, you have issues with, mm-hmm. with you know vehicles, whatever it is, and like you know that's that was sort of like where we're at. And so we we were chatting before about how. The a, a lot of this, you know, when we talk about coordination and bringing agencies together and planning for emergencies, you know, a lot of this homeland security stuff sort of like takes the energy out of the room, and it's like, you know, they they sort of you know get all that focus of like, oh, you know, we're gonna buy all these expensive stuff, we're gonna right. do these drills and whatever, and it's like, you know, we don't always think about like what are like some of the sort of basics, like the twentieth right. century technology, right? Like, I mean. Um, that's and, and that's 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 you've got a point. So the the my I guess my take on that is leveraging DHS resources to say, uh, well, unfortunately, we're at the hands of DHS. They'll fund whatever we want, and that's that's their agenda. Um, but uh, I you know I, I like like that tra- emergency training facility rather other than just training training staff to know how to react in the event of a bomb. Also, being able to understand how do you how do you evacuate passengers from a smoking car, for instance, or um, and all of that sort of stuff. So, I mean, these and to go the step further is right. What are the contingencies that are going to you know unfold from whatever mm-hmm. the disaster is that you were training for? Exactly, exactly. And then being able to have that as second nature, because um, unfortunately, one of the things that comes with working in a skyscraper is that you also start have after in this post nine eleven world, you also have to learn, you know, consultants come in, your companies, companies will hire consultants to come in and teach their employees, um, uh, who's the, who's the floor walker, uh, contingency planning in the event of a fire, um, at my last job, I was one of the floor walkers, I took it upon myself to be one of the floor walkers to make sure that everybody was on, off of the floor, um, and then, and then pointing people to the correct stairwell, um, what do you do, do you evacuate first when you hear the the alarm? Do you shelter in place? You know, all of these types of things that um, you think about in a specifically 9-11 capacity, but then it's it's applicable in, 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 many, other, in, in many other ways in terms of figuring out plan A, plan B, what do you, what is the order of operations? How do we, how do we think reasonably about this? But then making that second nature for leadership. So that way it's not just, oh crap, the red line is out. Now what do we do? Okay, we have to scramble buses, but these bus drivers don't know what the route is. You know that's that type of thing. So, um, so moving moving from yeah. I guess contingency planning and what do we do when these disasters happen? What do we go forward? And the system is crumpled, <laughs> but but how do we fund or how do we make sure our, our system is long term taken care of so that it functions every single day and we lessen the risk of having the type of shutdown that we've had. Uh, these last few weeks, so you know that's that's the funding issue, and we've had a no shortage of articles and commentaries and debates, um, press conferences where people are talking about. Obviously, there's a funding issue with the T. Um, there's been a lot of blame on. Well, of course, all the usual suspects get pointed out. Of well, we need to reform first. You know, they're wasting mm-hmm. on the pension and they're wasting on Beverly Scott's dry cleaning and 
and, and all these areas where we can supposedly find money to fix the, the power supply. I'm, I'm sure that a frumpy suit's definitely not going to, or, or whatever the, I think she was wearing a poncho at the, uh, there was a, there were a few, there were a few snippy remarks from, um, from some of my friends on Facebook about what she was wearing at the press conference. I mean, but, <laughs> which, of course, you know, probably wouldn't be said about, about a man, but maybe that's... Right, of course, that's... Governor, everybody's blaming Governor Baker for not wearing the, the meme vest as the reason why we keep getting snow. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, I think people would point stuff like that oh, out, yeah. out at a man. Um, but, but point taken, uh, at any rate. But, you know, so people are saying, well... Um, you know, so, so, so the, the other, uh, besides going after all the easy shots of, of you know, pennies, nick, nickels and dimes here and there that are being wasted, mm-hmm. that wouldn't actually add up to, to serious um, reform. And uh, to be clear, we're all around the table here, all of the above as far as reform. Like, yes, that has to be a part of anything we do. Yeah. But saying reform first and revenue second, or reform first and we'll give you what you need second, doesn't really get us there. Um, the other issue that's been pointed out a lot is is that, the expansion of the T has been vilified. Now, I think a lot of people didn't really realize that the T was one of the fastest, the, I guess, the fastest expanding transit uh, agency in the country. And the reason you're not realizing it is because you're still riding the same, you know, red and orange cars, and you're forgetting that, well, the old colony lines on the commuter rail were expanded. Right. So these are the kind of things people say, well, we were expanding, we're paying for this expansion, but it was the wrong kind of expansion. Right. And so, therefore, because this was legally mandated expansion from, from the big dig mitigation, well, now the bad actor becomes the Conservation Law Foundation because well, they're the ones who are suing the Commonwealth to enforce this agreement on the mitigation. Right. So I think we need to spend a little bit of time unpacking that and talking about why this expansion happened, good expansion versus bad expansion, right. you know, and those kinds of things. Well, I think... Kind of real, rolling it back just a few, a couple of steps there. Um, I think it's even. I, th- I think what muddles the conversation even more for a lot of people is um, rather this kind of lack of understanding of the difference between operating costs and capital costs, and then also um, just the the understanding that um, of, of where this of where this capital capital expansion came from. A lot of people seem to think that the MBTA took on. Uh, a lot of people, even in spite of the news, seem to st- still think that this expansion came upon because the MBTA did it rather than the MBTA had an obligation to do it and right. they were it's filling been it. referred to as right. undisciplined expansion. Right. Undisciplined right. expansion, but by whom? So the, that's right. the... Um, well, that's, well, then let's clarify yeah. that. Let's yeah. say, okay, so the Commonwealth decided, and I hope any listeners will let us know if we're going to get this wrong, but the Commonwealth decided yeah. that they wanted to do the big gig. They wanted to bury the central artery underground in downtown Boston. You know, one of one of several projects that happened, but... And as a part of this, the Conservation Law, the Conservation Law Foundation said, aha, there's, there's going to have to be an EPA review and approval of this. And we, all, we, we know, many of us who have been reading a lot of literature out there about highway planning understand that if you add more lanes, you induce more demand. So mm-hmm. basically, mm-hmm. the Central Artery Project was going to induce more pollution, and the EPA would have to review it. Which it did. So the Conservation <laughs> Law Foundation said, this is an opportunity for us to get some more funding into transit uh, as opposed to just this being a highway project. Right. And so they came to an agreement with the governor, um, which was, I believe at that point, was Dukakis, yes, on his way out the door. Yep. Yeah. And they came to an agreement that the legislature adopted that several different um, mitigation, they're calling it mitigation, but several different expansions of the T would be funded 
simultaneously with the Big Dig project. Now, we're 30 years later, and some of them are finally happening with the Greenland extension. Of course, the old colony lines happened, but these things happened. They were legally mandated. They were in a, you know, a binding contractual agreement between the state and the EPA and the MBTA. These things would happen. Mm-hmm. And you know, moving down the line, when they had to happen, the legislature, even though it adopted saying, yes, we'll do this, the legislature never actually decided to proactively pay for it. And that's the reason why it was for the MBTA either or. It was, we can either do this commuter rail expansion or we can upgrade our power or we can buy new rail cars. The reason it was either or is because they didn't have the pot of money where they could do both. Right. And well, that's the reason why people point to the Conservation Law Foundation that was suing the state and the MBTA saying, you need to follow through with the Greenland extension. And so people are saying, oh, well, it's the Conservation Law Foundation. They were suing to force the MBTA to spend this money. Well, actually, they wouldn't have had to sue if the legislature had funded the commitments they had made. If you just tuned in, that's what it would look like to you, is that, right. oh, okay, oh, these people are suing over the... But if you don't, that's the problem with the with transportation history, is that it's... Uh, we, we've, we've gotten into a few arguments with folks on, 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 on Twitter who seem to think that, tra- that, that history is irrelevant and that we should just move forward. Cut. We don't need to know 50 years of history. And I think we also need forward. to say, so, so if, if, the, if yeah. these expansions were poor decisions, yeah. it's so, okay, why? Why were, why were those baked in? You know, mm-hmm. Why did we have poor planning decisions? That right. All of the mitigation expansions were, are not equal. They, they weren't yeah. all what you would quote-unquote call poor decisions. Yeah. But the old colony lines are easy to pick on. Um, because those are suburban commuter lines. They don't have the type of ridership that justifies the cost that it took to install those lines. And I think one of the things that we need to remember is that the highway project of the central artery, that was something that was really bringing people in from the suburbs, making it easier for them to commute into Boston. Yes. And so they were thinking about, okay, what are transit projects that will also appeal to those suburban riders so that we will also have people in the suburbs that are taking transit and not just... Uh, their, their their personal vehicles, and so that's one of the reasons that we had these suburban transit projects built in, you know, to the mix here, baked in, right. and they didn't work out as well as we wanted to because we know that you don't get as much for your transit dollar when you take transit to the suburbs as opposed to when you take it to already urban areas. So two things there. Uh, the biggest thing being that um, the these projects the legislator legislature funded and effectively earmarked those that 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 money it's not it's not entirely so much that the MBTA kind of chooses these projects on one hand they're obligated but they're also the legislature also sometimes gives them specific grants to say okay do do x kind of like i think i've mentioned this before like uh when i worked in weston public schools uh, you know, if a parent gave forty thousand dollars for an iPad cart, that's what we had to spend the money on. We, you know, that that's it. Even even if we needed new labs, I couldn't spend my 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 IT director could not redirect those dollars to pay for something else. That's that's money that is granted and is earmarked for a specific thing. Right. When the legislature passes their budget every every two years, yeah. they in in much of the money right. that gets allocated to the agencies they say what it can be spent right. on so the agency may come and say we need this budget and these are what we want to spend it on yeah. and the legislature might not give them the whole yeah. amount 
And then they'll also say, and you have to spend it on these things, which may not line up right. with what the agency already had exactly. committed to, or so, what its priorities were, legally or otherwise. So the the, the biggest and most, uh, most specific, significant example that's close to home right now is the fact that, as Dr. Scott mentioned in the, um, in the press conference, the, the designs and specs for the new Orange Line cars had been on the shelf for the, since 2007, I think 2005 at the earliest, or something like that. When I came to Boston here in 2009, that was the first time that I saw them on the Capital Investment Pro- Program, and up until now, it's taken, what, six years now, and uh, or, or rather, it was up until last year, up until last year, it had been on the the, the ca- as a capital line capital budget line item, and the MBTA just did not get the money that it was granted from the state. So it's not so much that the T didn't want to pay for the Orange Line cars, and then some people would say, "Oh, maybe maybe if we didn't pay the pensions for that, blah 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 blah." Um, I'd like to see I'd like to see you squeeze five hundred million dollars out of a out of a budget. Um, or even seven hundred million dollars, which was the original uh, the original design spec, seven hundred fifty million dollars out of a budget that's continuing to grow, not because of not because of corruption, but inflation. So I think it was you, you Mark, that said that it's the, what, the pensions is less than one percent. It's budget. less than one percent of the budget. The, the the annual contributions to the uh, to the pensions. But then the second point, um, uh, going back to expansion. Um, and I've completely lost. Oh well, no, no. So, so <laughs> what we've done, what we've done there, as you mentioned, the fact that suburban rail, uh, in conjunction with making it easier to drive, um, that's what Texas does. <laughs> this is this is this is almost very exactly what yeah. Texas does, and their um, I want to say that their transportation department, their state transportation department, is even more indebted than Boston's or than Massachusetts. Um, I, I'll have to double check those facts, but uh, the last t- the last streets blog, uh, the last streets blog blog coverage I saw of of Texas's uh, transportation woes was that. They keep they keep pushing the they keep pushing the can kicking their their giant giant can down the road and I believe now if, or at the latest news that I heard that they're actually paying for the debt by taking out more bonds. Yeah, for us, it's, well, it's not a can; it's a box, and in the box is a switch heater. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, the, exactly. one of the reasons Texas yeah. is having is that they're investing heavily in in rail you know light rail projects, uh, but they're also not. Investing in transit-oriented, you know, development right. necessarily. Or, so or it's even, not making it. They're not inducing more transit demand because it, it's sort of like, well, here's here's a, a transit line, but it's not actually feasible right. to a lot of people to, to yeah. use it. And and then, but but more to our point, um, they'll they'll build a tran. They'll like the most recent light rail line, I believe, um, got built in the same stretch of highway where I believe they added more lanes and then upgraded an interchange. So. You know, so it's it's. I mean, you know, if you think about what you know, you talk about good expansion, bad expansion, and you know the way a lot of this, you know, we know that a lot of transit projects are like of dubious value. You know, and you consider right. like, you know, what what, and not because I, I don't like transit. You know, you don't want to be a transit advocate. You know, not supporting a transit project, but um, you know, when we think about what with the big dig stuff, it was kind of you know, it's really you know, you know, very political, and it was mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, we're focusing on suburban commuters. When you take a look now at the system that we have. And we say, what are the needs? Mm-hmm. Okay, the I was looking at some stats the other day, and the um, the ridership on the T uh, rail line and the, the heavy rail has gone up thirty percent in the past ten years, and the service level 
is exactly the same. Have we pay, have we have <laughs> have the revenues and the and yeah, so the service level has that increased by 30% or have exactly have we gotten well, have we gotten 30% more revenue from that? What, so, what what you're getting at is why do we choose why do we choose the bad expansion? And the mm-hmm. reason we choose the bad the reason why we choose suburban commuter lines rather than projects that will increase the capacity of our central subways such as power improvements and signal improvements yeah. and the the red blue connector and things like that and more tracks on the green line that can allow expresses and green line and heavy rail green line heavy rail exactly the reason why we make those choices is because our legislature which allocates the money as mark was saying to fund which of these priorities get to go forward more of the legislature is from outside of boston than is from inside boston and so when they enter into that negotiation they have to bake in some goodies for everybody. Mm-hmm. And that means that because more we, of it will end up actually going to benefit the suburbs because there's more of them than there are the central city because there's only... I mean, we have 101 cities and towns, but there's still more outside of that than, than is inside of that. Can you just to clarify that real quick, just because you know you used to work in the state house and um, I'm curious, it, it seems like... I know with the, with the United States and the federal level, right... You have you have the Senate where every state gets two um, two representatives, except DC, which is unfair. <laughs> but the but and then you have the House of Representatives, which is like proportional representation. So you have you know in theory at least, I mean, it's gerrymandering and all that. But the idea is that you know there's people the, the more populated areas have more representatives. Now, why is it that in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts that the more populated areas such as Boston and Somerville and Chelsea and, you know, Worcester and, um, you know, um, Everett. And why do these more populated areas not outnumber the rural areas in terms of representation? Is it not that senators just by by gravitas have more, have like more influence than Well, senators have or? more influence because yeah. there's fewer of them, exactly. right? And so if they're going to be distributed equitably, you know, amongst it, then then each it's, it's exactly the same in, in the U.S. Senate where it basically gives the less populous states uh, more influence than the, the more urban areas. Even in spite because, of the representatives. Right, because they yeah. still get their two senators, and right. so they still get that much power. You know, Wyoming gets as much power as, as New, New Jersey gets, you know. But don't they both have to come together and... Like, don't they both there have are joint committees, yes. Or, yeah, right. and they, they both right. have to be involved in the legislative process? They like, have to pass uh, equivalent uh, bills in both chambers. Right. The difference is, and this is where I, I need to look this up again, is uh, the, the the transportation bills or the, the funding bills start, I believe they start in the House, mm-hmm. um, so they get they get to author it. I would need to look back at you know how exactly that works. But, yeah, if you have, you have both sides of the legislature need to pass the same bill, basically, um, then it ends up actually swinging a little bit more in favor of the Senate. Because then the, this, it won't pass in the Senate unless... Oh, okay. Because yeah. each, like, each just... senator has a little bit more power than each representative has because there's fewer of them. Okay, yeah. so basically it's just like the House can, you know, put put whatever funding bills or whatever that they want, but the Senate's just not going to approve right. them, and then that's... Yeah. Right. That's the okay. irony is that's that very enlightening. I appreciate that. <laughs> the, the irony is that uh, as I keep as I've mentioned in previous podcasts, um, the 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 I believe it's the state senator for for Lynn who is the head of the Joint Committee on Transportation, or is it Ways and Means? One of those is is ironically his he, he's not getting he's not getting the blue line extension to Lynn. So so something's something's amiss well, here. That's so. also because um, it's actually. 
as as we said before, the right. three most important people in Massachusetts are the governor, and then, but even more than that, is the Senate president yes. and the Speaker of the House. And yeah. so it doesn't really matter. It helps that he's on the Transportation Committee, but if his uh, if the Senate president doesn't want it, then it doesn't happen that because yeah. that's who who um, who who swings. That, that's who gets to make the decisions because we don't have a Republican caucus that's big enough to really make a difference in a lot of these debates. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's basically the leader of the the, the singular party the super makes majority. all makes all the yeah. choices. So yeah. as far as the civics lesson, you know, there we go. Um, <laughs> and so th- I think that explains, you know. So and and the other thing is you're hearing a lot lately about the east west divide in Massachusetts. Right. Yes. Basically, east west really just boils down to suburban and urban um, because you basically have Boston and everyone else. And so, you know, this is, I don't really want to bring the Olympics in, but this is for the sake of talking about this funding issue of transportation because um, uh, former Lieutenant Governor Tim Murray, um, now I believe the head of the uh, um, Chamber of Commerce in mm. Worcester, yes, he, he made a post uh, last week in the midst of all this conversation about the T where... And he was saying, okay, well, for the Olympics, what we need is transportation funding equity. The reason why he latched on to that is because everybody's talking about how if the Olympics was to happen, the the public portion of the funding basically is going to go to transportation. And so he's saying, well, this is sort of like the next big dig. And he's saying, and, and this obviously feeds into exactly what we're talking about, the transportation funding for the T. And he's saying, well, if we're going to have the Olympics happen, we need legislative uh, uh, a, a, a law being passed that says that we have to have equitable transportation going to the suburbs, transportation investment going to the suburbs as as going to happen inside Boston. Right. And he basically blamed the big dig as saying, example, big dig, you know, Boston got all the funding for the big dig and everybody else saying east versus west, we all got set back a generation as far as infrastructure funding for transportation. And, and I just have to point out that that's not true. The funding for the big dig actually benefited people outside of Boston. A highway project is there to help the people who don't live in the city get into the city more quickly. It, it, what it has done is facilitate the ability of someone to live in Metro West or Wellesley or even Worcester and get into downtown Boston almost as fast as people in like Dorchester and Mattapan can get downtown Boston. Right. And, and so just because the construction happened in Boston, a lot of people to the West are going to say, oh, well, you know, Boston got all the benefits, and I get to pay for it by paying the tolls, and and that's just not quite true. And in fact, I think what's more to the point is the Big Dig, as a highway project built for suburban um, drivers, actually probably set back Boston itself as far as transportation investment mm-hmm. in the transit system by a generation. Right. So now I, I know it's not as simple as saying just we could you know instead of spending that twenty million dollars on Big Dig, we could just spend it on you know in transit because twenty billion. $20 billion. Can we keep inflating it and give, yeah. me, give me one of those bills? Well, that's, that's, um, what, that's what happens. So, hmm. so I, I know it's not as simple because obviously like the way the money, the way the funding is you know, allocated and like we wouldn't be able to get $22 billion for transit because it's complicated and all that. But is that just because the, the fact that we missed out on the opportunity cost of, of doing the big dig essentially is that there is no, no money available for other things? That you know we could do, we so you know upgrade capacity or yeah, buses or whatever the heck we want to do. I mean, that's assuming that that funding would have happened for transit anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I think that you're right. I think that if we hadn't spent twenty two billion dollars on burying the central artery, then 
a portion of that money would have gone to transit uh, instead. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it probably it would have been diffused to other highway projects all over the Commonwealth. Um, and at least the Central Artery did uh, did continue to concentrate things in the center, in the urban center, as opposed to simply right. building more and more rings. So, I mean, you can say we got that, I guess. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not a one-for-one. One. It's not like we spent $1 on the big dig so we didn't have $1 for transit. I think that money would not necessarily have been spent on transit anyway. The problem is that, that it took all the money out of you know, the, the whole conversation around big projects, whether you want to call it North-South Rail Link or expanding capacity, because transit projects cost a lot of money. And that's because... It's not like buying a car that carries one person. It's like buying a car that carries thousands and thousands of people every day. These are these are orders of magnitude that are beyond most people's just comprehension. When you get into billions, you... you know, it, when you divide it out per capita, you know, and think about this project is going to, you know, it's just like the orange line cars that have been shuttling people around for 50 years, you know. If you divide it out by how many people ride it every single day over the lifespan of that project, it's an extremely wise investment yeah. and, and actually cheaper than your highway interchanges and things like that. Right. But Which are space you get into too. billions, and then the conversation just gets into that area. Now people say, "Well, we spent all this money on the big dig, and you know we got this hangover from the big dig." So, right. mm-hmm. well, no, yeah, I, I, and and kind of we're we're running short on time here, but to just kind of uh, touch very briefly and satiate your uh, your interest on this, um, it kind of loops back to revenue. What because of this polit because of the the East West uh, Massachusetts politics. Um, is it really high time for for inner Boston, um, or rather, rather inner inner Metro Boston to 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 tax itself, or uh, or VMT or congestion pricing or whatever to to get to that point where we can say, um, yeah, we will we will have one one point or three billion dollars over the next five years reserved for the MBTA to do all of this renewal and get to the point where we're somewhere in the 1990s in terms of the level of tech transit technology that we should have. So, um, that's, we can talk about that next time, but that's effectively where, where this conversation is going, you know, reform versus revenue. At what point do we say, at what point do we say, well, okay, we've, you've done enough, you've done the, the reform, pat on the back, here's your money, Go, you know, go to the store, get yourself some candy and some new buses and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, go down so. to like go down to the, uh, the the big box store. Yeah, go. Yeah, go. Walmart, buy a subway yeah, car. Yeah, go go down to uh, go down to you know Bombardier or Bombardier trains are us and uh, you know buy us some new red line trains. Yeah. Well, I think the one thing that we can say is that you know, d- despite the presentation that T four MA made at the Street Talks um, um, event a few months ago, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I. I just I think that the the gas tax conversation has come and gone. Yeah, uh, we fought that battle. That battle doesn't happen every year. It, you know, it's going to be at least five years. And I, I think the consensus that you're seeing amongst uh, legislators and advocates is that um, it, the funding is not going to come from an increase in the gas tax. Yeah, we're not we're not going to increase that again for probably a decade if we do. And by the time we get to that point, I almost think the gas tax is becoming obsolete. It probably won't go away. But the increased funding is going to have to come from somewhere else, like you said, vehicle miles traveled, um, or you know, congestion pricing, or peak hour, you know, tolling, or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that's a con- that's a bigger conversation for, well, maybe another day. So yeah, hopefully, I mean, I think pretty, you know, and, and less, yeah. you know, the only thing I'm actually losing my voice here, and I don't know why. <clears throat> too, too much talking about transit. Um, so, 
But I think, yeah, the city's not going to have to come together, and, you know, we talk about the city's coming together and yeah. doing contingency planning and doing emergency plans, and, you know, it's it's inherently unfair because, you know, yeah. we talk about the ways that the transit benefits not just the people who use yeah. it, um, you know, that the whole, I mean, you see how the whole state's economy is falling apart because, you know, the T is, so it's inherently unfair to put all the cost on the city, you know, people in, in the core of the, you know, of Boston, but... It's kind of what we've been doing for for years, yeah. and uh, th- it's what has to be done, I guess. I, th- I think I think it's uh, to to the point that some people that some people have been saying, and, and we can punctuate uh, punctuate our post with this: is that uh, if any of you mayors are listening, this is your time to shine because um, it 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 might even we might not uh, we might not have a state to back you. So uh, if you, <laughs> you know that's that's yeah. where we are right now. You you have you hold all of the power. The, rather. As uh, as Captain Captain Planet says, the power is yours. So, um, all right. Now, if you make Captain Planet, <laughs> now we have to end the podcast. Now we now we do need to absolutely end the podcast. So, all right. So yeah, you check out the blog in uh, transitmatters.info and uh, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and um, you can send us stuff, send us email, feedback at transitmatters.info, send your comments, questions, and uh, all the rest. Uh, you can follow me. I'm Jeremy. Follow me on Twitter at critical transit and. Uh, you can follow me, Mark Ibunya, on the main Transit Matters Twitter account. And you can follow me, Josh Fairchild, at Hatchback31. Well, thanks again for listening, and tune in to our next podcast for more transit news and digest, because transit matters. <laughs>